So we are in a series from Isaiah that I love because it's getting us ready for Christmas. Now, I know that sounds a little premature. I reminded you last week that there are some countries, including the Philippines, that decorate their malls in September. And so we uh, are, are getting started, but what occurred to me as I started preparing all this is that we can't really embrace that God sent His Son for us unless we embrace His glory, His greatness. And so this first part of our series is called Behold Your God because that comes from Isaiah uh, chapter 6 that we read last week, Behold Your God. This week I want to talk about the greatness of God. And I was a little stunned, I guess. I know I shouldn't ever be because I've done it a hundred million times, but when John was leading us through communion, and he said, let's stop for just a minute. And when we stop for just a minute, we, we, the design is that we would all realize how much we need what we are representing in this Holy Communion. How much we are unable to save ourselves, how much we are unable to, to create forgiveness for our sins, how, how much we can't and He can because He demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And so in communion, it almost sets us up for uh, the message that I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the greatness of God. The greatness of God. We use the word great a lot, right? Novel, great expectations, lakes, the great lakes, you get your hair cut at great clips, great day, great frosted flakes. And, and we use that word all the time, but if we really get down to it, only God is great like that. Psalm 145, I I couldn't help but kind of go there. Psalm 145, you don't need to, to look, just listen to these words. The psalmist, David, King David, I will extol you, my God and King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And Alvaro, when you baptized Emma this morning, this next line wrecked me. I just kind of came apart. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. The greatness of God is something that we are supposed to communicate from one generation to the other, and yet great becomes a response when, when, when we are, are, are trying to figure out anything. We, we say, how you doing? Great. And we've almost cheapened it. We've, we've cheapened the relationship that we have with God. One of the things that sort of drew me to this whole passage or this whole idea of the greatness of God was a, a bumper sticker. Sorry. And it's a bumper sticker that I don't really like. So if you have one in your car, there will be time after the service for you to go peel it off before I see your car. God is my co-pilot. Now, no offense to aviators, but a co-pilot pretty much has one job. 
if the pilot gets in trouble, the co-pilot's got to take over. If the pilot needs help, the co-pilot steps in. If the pilot is not able to do what the pilot is supposed to do, then the co-pilot sort of comes alongside. And, and, and when we say, God is my co-pilot, we're in the left seat, he's in the right seat, and we've presented ourselves sort of as equals. I said this last week, he's not our best friend. He's not our bestie. He's not our homeboy, our BFF, or, or whatever we want to call God. He is God. He is separate. He is holy. He is anointed. He is high. He is lifted up. And in His presence, we realize how small we really are. So, in this series, I just found myself wanting to behold God, wanting to to grasp a God that's so much bigger than me that he can handle the stuff that I bring him. He can, he can take me away sometimes from this toxic culture and help me know that there's hope, help me know that there's something beyond, help me know that there's something above, help me know that there's something great that's not me. Last week we talked about the glory of God. This week we talk about the greatness of God. Next week we talk about the gratitude that we can express to Him for His greatness. I will go ahead and bury my lead. I'm a, a bit of a space nerd. In 1969 I was 12 years old and I have a scrapbook or had a scrapbook that was six inches thick of, of all of the, the, the newspaper clippings of the lunar landing in July of 1969. And so when the images started being released from the new James Webb telescope, I was absolutely captured. Uh, Alan Tolliver and I probably talked about this longer than we talk about a lot of ministry things, but the these images that you'll see today behind all the slides, most of them are from the Webb Telescope. There are, of course, some that aren't, but, but, but these images of space like the one you see here are all from the Webb Telescope because when I begin to consider the vastness of the universe, the idea that we can put a, a man on the moon, the idea that we can send a, a rover to Mars, the idea that we can identify planets that are so far off, and yet when we get this telescope in space, we realize that we're seeing nothing, that we're seeing nothing. To see God for who He is, to see ourselves for who we are, is what makes us anticipate the need and the birth of our Savior. So, behold, God is great. He's great in His purpose and power. Last week we talked about Isaiah uh, chapter 6, and Isaiah 6 is obviously in the section of Isaiah 1 through 39, which is a, a separate section from Isaiah 40 and beyond. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, he's talking about what is in the present and in the immediate future. He's talking about the condition of, of the, the culture, the society. He's talking about the, the, the choices that, that, that people seem to be making, that they understand who God is. They begin to grasp His greatness, and yet they do their own thing. I'm glad none of us do that. It's a 
a, a judgment, a tone of, uh, of harsh judgment that, that we read in these 39 uh, chapters. Last week from Isaiah chapter 6, I Isaiah finally realized, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm, I'm not worthy. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be able to speak. I shouldn't be able to, to, to stand or to see or to, to anything. I'm in the presence of God. I, I should be struck dead because he is so holy and I'm so not. And that's kind of the tone through 39 chapters. But in chapter 40, we, we, we sort of turn a page and it's a continuation of the same story. Isaiah was told uh, uh, when the, the, the seraphim put a coal on his lip and pronounced that he was forgiven, pronounced that he was clean, pronounced that he could now speak. It, it was an act of the greatness of God, undeserved by man. And so for 39 chapters we get this, and in chapter 40 he sort of turns the corner, and, and it's a chapter that you're very familiar with if you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, because this is a prominent chapter in that musical. And so he says now not a word of judgment, but a word of comfort. Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort my people. He says it twice to make sure we understand that, that he's now talking about a, a, a gentler time, a, a time where the, the pain and the hardship of, is beginning to go away. And the really blow-your-mind part of this is that Isaiah is writing about something that's not going to take place for another 150 years. In chapter 39, at the very end, he mentions Babylon, and Babylon is not even an enemy yet. Uh, Assyria is the nation that has conquered their nation. They are under the rule of Assyria by this time, and yet at the end of chapter 39, he mentions Babylon. Babylon, in, in 150 years from when he started all this, would be the ones that would conquer Jerusalem. And yet he writes now as if that's immediate. This is coming, but at the end of that exile, at the end of that time of trouble, you will receive comfort. That's, that's what this is. And you're going, okay, whatever. Ancient Israel, don't you want to know that there's comfort at the end of your trouble? <laughs> don't you want to know at the end of your anxiety, the end of the the absolute wreck that you are over a relationship, over a job, over a family situation? Don't you want to know that there's, there's comfort at the end of it, that, that this isn't forever, that, that you will see God in the midst of this, that you will experience the greatness of God through it? Don't, don't you want to know that? that? That sort of makes Isaiah's eighth century before Christ's prophecy seem like it's very, very current. Comfort my people. My people, says your God, starts with the relationship. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare, better translation, hardship, her hardship has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There's two ways to read that. One is she's received double punishment. She was especially a bad girl, so she deserves double the punishment that she deserved. That's a way to look at it. 
but it doesn't really fit, right? It doesn't really go with the tone of the, the passage. Comfort, speak tenderly. Iniquity has been pardoned. Can we look at it a little differently? She's, she's received double the grace that she deserved. She's received twice as much forgiveness as she had any right to expect. The Lord is abundant, double for all of our sins. Isaiah 40 uh, continues. Uh, I'm going to get to verse 12 here in just a moment, but, 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 but kind of follow this along. A voice cries in the wilderness, verse 3. That's talking about the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. A voice in the wilderness prepares the way of the Lord, makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. The tune in your head, you're welcome. And every mountain and hill be made low. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The next section talks about the Word of God, that, that He doesn't leave us with just these random kind of vague images of Himself. He leaves His Word, and it stands forever. Verse 9, the greatness of God. Go onto a high mountain, O herald of good news. Good news there is a, a Hebrew word that, that we translate in the New Testament as evangelism. Go tell the good news. Tell somebody about the, 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 the greatness of God. Behold your God. Behold the Lord comes with His might. Then verse 12 is kind of the reason that I... I was drawn to this and, and almost the, the whole series. Verse 12, the glory, Alan said this in his article this week, the glory of his creation and my absolute insignificance are both on display and I cannot summon the right words to describe my sense of wonder. So in chapter 40 in verse 12, he kind of says what, drew me to this, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Everybody do something with me, just audience participation part of the show. Everybody hold out your hand like that. Doesn't matter which one, as long as they both look alike. Then make a little cup in your hand. Now, that barely would hold the communion that you drank. If you'd have peeled off that, that layer and poured it into your hand, it, you could barely hold just that, that very small part of liquid. But every ocean, every sea, every river, every lake, every puddle on this planet which is one of many planets in a solar system, which is one of many solar systems, in a galaxy, which is one of many galaxies, he holds all of that water in the hollow of his hand. And even that's just a human way to describe his greatness. Everybody do this. Hold your hand up like this. Spread it out. Spread the fingers out. From the end of your little finger to the end of your thumb, that's a span. That's a span. He has marked off the heavens 
with the breadth of his hand or with a span. The waters, the universe. He has held the dust of the earth in a basket. You can't even get the dust together in your living room. And he has collected all of it in one place. He's weighed the mountains. He's weighed the hills in a balance. The, 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 the writer, Isaiah, he wants us to get an idea of the greatness of God. Every now and then I read an illustration that I just unashamedly knock off as my own. This is not my own. I have converted it to be my own. The writer says, we live on a big planet. This is my part. My grandson lives near Dallas, Texas, which is 800 miles away. Seems like a long drive. It takes Judy and I pretty much a full day. However, if Judy and I were to keep driving, and if it was possible, it would be another month of pretty full days for us to be able to circumnavigate the 25,000-mile circumference of the earth. But the earth is tiny compared to our sun, How many earths do you think would fit inside the sun? Now, I remember it blew my mind when I learned that the Astrodome in Houston could fit inside the Superdome in New Orleans, but it blows my mind even further to know that 1,300,000 earths could fit inside the sun. 1,300,000. Now let's play a little bit. Take our solar system and shrink it down to the size of where the sun is the size of a basketball. So picture the sun size of a basketball. Million three hundred thousand Earths in the middle of it. If the sun was the size of a basketball and everything in our solar system was to scale, Mercury would be the size of a grain of sand. And if it was still in scale, and the sun is a basketball, and the sun is right here, Mercury would be all the way at the back of the room, 80 feet away. And do you know where Neptune would go? You know, Neptune's the last planet since we booted Pluto out of the solar system. Neptune is the outermost part planet in our solar system, and if it was to scale, Neptune would be at Northside Hospital, two and a half miles from here. If you shrunk our solar system down so that our immense sun was the size of a basketball, our solar system would be five miles in diameter. Can't imagine that kind of distance in space. These, these pictures blow my mind. Then we are reminded that our solar system is one of billions of solar systems in our galaxy, and that our galaxy is one of tens of billions of galaxies in the universe, and now our minds are officially blown. Yet, Isaiah says, God created it all. He built it all. Psalm 8 says, He flung the stars into space. So work with me through Isaiah chapter 40, beginning verse 13. Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord? 
who can instruct the Lord as counselor. Not only are we talking about God's greatness in creation, we're talking about his greatness in wisdom. Who, who, who did he consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, showed him the path of understanding? He is the origin of all created things, but also all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. Lebanon in the day was known for its forests. It's obviously been deforested as humans have not replaced the trees, but it was known for its cedar trees. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless, less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? Isn't that image incredible? What will you liken him as for an idol? The, the metal worker casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker. We, we try to create things that remind us of God. We wear little crosses around our necks. We have paintings. We have pictures from the web telescope. We have lots of things that remind us of God, but they are only idols in comparison to the vastness, the greatness, the enormity of who God is and what He is for us. Isaiah continues. This is another image from the telescope. This is not a painting. Do you not know? Have you not heard has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and the people are like grasshoppers. Does this verse not blow your mind? You remember this is 800 years before Christ, when the numbers were going backwards? Galileo was what? How did Isaiah know the earth was round? <laughs> How did Isaiah, all the way back then, did, did, did God instruct him in this prophecy? Did God say, oh, here's a little tidbit for those in the 21st century so that, that you can just throw this little breadcrumb out there and see how God is above all, is in all. He is over all justice. He is over all knowledge. He is over all love. He is over all power. He is over all creation. Sometimes we just reduce him to being our co-pilot. He stretches out his hands. This is the blood moon from last week. Spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to nothing. Reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted or sown. They don't take root in the ground. He blows them away and they wither. All of the kingdoms, all of the politics, all of the armies that ever will march can be blown away with just the breath of God. That, that He allows us this, this existence, that He allows us a relationship with Him, that He allows us to enjoy the, the created order, it blows me away. This is the first image from the Webb telescope. This is the deep space shot that, that these are all galaxies. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He brings the starry host one by one, calls forth each by name. Because of his great power, his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. <laughs> he doesn't lose track of all that. 
In the New Testament, it says that he, he, he knows how many hairs are on my head. Granted, it's much easier to count than it used to be. But he knows of every sparrow that falls to the earth. He paints every lily that's in the field. The greatness of our God. How do you, why do you humans complain? He calls Israel Jacob. Why, why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded from God. I'm not getting what I want. I, I, I don't I understand this much. And yet God is God. This is called the pillars of creation. This is what scientists called it. This is a galaxy that's been spotted by the telescope. Do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. Maybe you're blown away like I am. Maybe all of a sudden the problems that you bring to him, you go this, and yet we act like he's our co-pilot. God, sit this one out. I can solve this one on my own. I, I will neglect all of the resources that I'm seeing, all of the greatness that I'm seeing, all of the vastness that I'm seeing. I can handle this on my own because, no, I can't. When my grandson gets sick, the first thing I ask is, what do the doctors say? And I'm immediately convicted that the first thing that I should ask is, God, can you find it in your plan to heal him? Can you, can you make him better? Can you use whatever medicine is necessary? Can you intervene? Can you be the one? Can you draw your, your, us to yourself because of this? Can you use this thing for your glory? In John chapter 9, Jesus was asked, why is this man sick? Did he sin or did his parents sin? He says, nobody sinned. This is for God's glory. Can we wrap our minds around that, that we reduce God so often to being a co-pilot when we have all of the resources of a God who, who is this powerful? I skipped over verse 11 when I read through the text, because as I read through it, I saw the vastness of God sort of on display, but then when I went back to chapter 40, verse 11, I read this verse. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. God can create a galaxy that we're just now finding out about. He can create billions and billions of galaxies and universes if that's what he wants to do. And he measures it with a span. He holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. He is that great. He is that terrifying. He is that vast. And yet he loves us. He throws us over his shoulder like a sheep. 
And he says, you matter to me. You individual one who would cry out to me because of the sin that's in your life. You matter to me. You count. And as vast as the universe is, as overwhelmed as us science geeks are with deep space thoughts, he cares about me enough to throw me over his shoulder when I'm lost, when I don't know where to go, I don't know where to turn, I don't know who to follow. He's vast, yes, but he's a shepherd. Alan's article in the e-news this week, and you'll get one of those every Monday that's just talking about some of these things from the perspective of each of our staff people. But Alan talked about David, King David, writing Psalm 8 when he was barely a teenager. He said, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You put all things into space. You put all things on the earth. My translation, what am I that you would think of me? And and he talked about a shepherd who would be a king describing a king who was the good shepherd. He talked about the vastness of space, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What am I that you would think of me? Vast? Yes. Tender? Yes. Compassionate? Yes. Is any of our sin too great for Him? If you look at all the great things that He has done, I sure hope you don't think that your sin is beyond His reach of forgiveness. And it is my prayer that you grasp both His vastness and His tenderness even today. Would you pray with me? Lord, you blow our minds. And yet when we are aware of how amazing you are, and yet you care enough for us to send your Son to die for us, so that as great as we think our problems are, they are not too great for you to forgive. But like Isaiah, you send a solution and you pronounce us healed. Lord, if there's someone in the room or someone watching online who has never said yes to you, who has never said, I want to follow Jesus, I need him in my life to forgive my sins, to forgive me of those sins, to let me live with him, walk with him, follow him, be around a group of people who help me learn about him for the rest of my days. If that's your prayer, would you please see me, Brian, John, Jeff, Bridget? Would you, would you see one of us today or find somebody in the lobby wearing a name tag, wearing a green shirt? Say, I want to have the most important conversation of all my eternity. 
I want to tap into the vastness and tenderness of God. I want to understand His creativity and His forgiveness. God, hear our prayers today. We pray in the name of Jesus.